Brooklyn and Avalon Life of the Mind podcast. I'm Sherry Walsh, Assistant Head of Brookwood, and I'm here today with Sally Rosen Kindred, a noted local poet and teacher um, who's participated in the Joseph W. McPherson uh, Poetry Contest as a judge and um, who has contributed to my classes in a variety of ways over the years by Zoom and in person, and I'm delighted to have her here. Uh, hi, Sally. Hi. It's great to be here. Um, and we're here today to talk a little bit about poetry. We were thinking about um, poetry as um, something important for students and for people in general to be familiar with and um, to enjoy, to study, um, to memorize. And um, we hope to end the podcast or maybe intersperse with um, some poems that Sally has written in her third collection, which is called Where the Wolf. Um, it's published by Diode Editions and it's available wherever you get your fine books. Um, so, Sally, yes. I, mean, I think it would be fun actually to talk a little bit biographically if you don't mind. Um, that would be fine. Um, I think you should talk a little bit if you don't mind about um, like how you became interested in poetry as um, a means of expression and um, as, I don't know, a vocation. Um, yeah, I'm happy to do that. I, I sort of feel like uh, a disclaimer is that a person, well, I just, because I'm very interested in getting across the idea that anybody's experience with poetry, any young person's experience with poetry can bring them a lot, and you don't have to be a person for whom it becomes a vocation to mm -hmm. have that great experience. But I, I was really fortunate, I think, in my early exposure to poetry because at times, in some places, at some schools, not any schools that we would know of, poetry can be introduced in ways that are somewhat oppressive. It can mm. be a hard, um, a hard introduction um, for in school. And and actually, if I had just learned about poetry in school when I was growing up, it might have been complicated because some teachers can bring to it um, this idea that it's a code to be unlocked, right? Right. And a problem to be solved, mm -hmm. and if you can't solve it then you, you, haven't, you haven't mastered it. Right, there's, there's the, the Billy Collins thing about tying the poem to the chair and, and exactly. whipping it or what have you. Or the Adrian Rich thing about, you know, pinning the poem on the wall, you know, like the wings of the poem on the wall, like a butterfly, right? And so thinking about um, how to analyze, yes, talk about, think through, um, and appreciate a poem uh, without either making it into a code for something else um, or um, taking it apart. I mean, or like um, Merwin talks about, W.S. Merwin um, talks about the, um, the sort of heresy of paraphrase, um, turning it into just its meaning. Again, like the poet is trying to say um, something instead of like, here's the poem. It's saying something, it's providing an experience, it's doing what it does. Right, and it's doing something. If, if you, if paraphrasing it were all that were necessary then the poet would have just said that paraphrase that easier right. declarative sentence instead of what the poet actually did so right. um yeah so i guess i would say my early experiences a good thing about them is that the stakes were low and i think that's something that can be reproduced in a classroom yeah um i became comfortable with poetry just kind of being around me it was sort of part of the furniture yeah um because my mother was um, a poet or a former and then present poet. She had written a lot of poetry in her teens and 20s, had stopped when she got married in her late 20s, and then had kids and 
and all those things that you do in the 1960s that don't involve writing poetry. Mm-hmm. And I was the last, the youngest, the last born, and I think she started turning back to poetry mm-hmm. at about the point that I was going to go to school and mm-hmm. was learning to read. So it was sort of a coincidence, but it was a great one. She was not a parent who would sit down on the ground with you and play, mm-hmm. but if you were playing nearby and she was reading a book and you said, what you doing? <laughs> she would look up and read a stanza of an Emily Dickinson poem. Nice. And she wouldn't quiz you on it. Right. Um, it would just sort of drift around you. Yeah. yeah. So I had that kind of early, I got comfortable. I didn't feel like I needed to know what it meant. It yeah, just that's like great. having somebody sing to you. Right. Right. Um, I think a lot of um, our lower school instruction with poetry has elements of that. I mean, I think that, that you know, there are all kinds of ways in and, all, and different different teachers at different moments will talk about poems in different ways. But a lot of the lower school poetry memorization um, feels to me like the students getting comfortable next to inside the poem and, um, and really, you know, internalizing it and, of course, saying it with their bodies, right? They, they're best when everything's physical. Right, and, and memorization, that's a beautiful thing about it, is that you had to kind of have the time and leisure to have the poem roll around in your mouth. You yeah. Know? The goal when you've memorized something is not necessarily to produce an exegesis, right? It's, it is a bodily, it's a visceral experience. Yeah. And and that's one of the gifts that poetry has, is its ability to sort of evoke the senses and create a vivid experience that you're not necessarily going to get in other ways we use language yeah. in conversation or a newspaper article. Yeah. Um, I think about Pinsky's book about um, about this too. Just I mean, just the importance of saying it out loud and hearing it. So like producing it with the mouth, hearing it with the ear, and just how corporeal that is, how embodied that is. Right. And I think that, you know, (laughs) of course I appreciate the way poetry can challenge me intellectually, but the poetry I think that I love the most creates kind of spaces, uh, embodied spaces Mm. and and mystery. Um, uh, Lucille Clifton talks about um, poems, I'm going to get this wrong, but don't come from knowing but from wonder. Nice. And I feel like, the poetry that spoke to me as a child and still speaks to me now is poetry that can evoke and embody wonder. Yeah. And rather than, which is not to say I don't appreciate a, mm-hmm. a, a, a poem with some clever moments or sure. a poem that enters an intellectual idea and shows me something new about it, but wonder is kind of a, a visceral thing. It, it You yeah. experience it on the level of the senses, which mm-hmm. are evoked when an image gets described, and you experience it with the body. Yeah. And yeah, I think memorization, it may feel like a rote task, but once the poem is in you in that way, you're actually free to get to know it yeah. and get close to it in a way you wouldn't be if you felt like it was out on the page and mm-hmm. you were just approaching it from, yeah. from the outside. Yeah, we, we do, do a Poetry Out Loud competition uh, where the students um, learn the poems and they, this is a high school contest, where they learn the poems and they say the poems in their classroom and then the students who win at that level go on and say the poems for the whole school. And then those students who win go on to say the poems for the region. And if you know, and if we have a really good year, we get somebody who goes on to state. But I think that like getting past, it's like being in a play though too, like getting past learning the lines, right? Mm-hmm. Once you have it, 
then it becomes something that um, that you really learn from. And I think about like the um, you know, Hugh Kenner, the well-wrought urn kind of, <laughs> but the idea of the thing that's um, that's crafted and uh, and that by internalizing it, it becomes it becomes part of you, and um, and you get to to hang out with it in a way that's not like what's the next word, you know. Um, and so we talk a lot in class about um, learning the poem not word by word or line by line, um, but sentence by sentence or gesture by gesture. And in doing that, it helps to bring the poem to to a different place. Right. I don't know. You're getting a deeper understanding of the poem's structure, too, yeah. and, and its form, and how things like the line breaks may be operating in tension with where the sentences start and end. Yeah. I mean, I feel like it memorizing actually frees up part of your attention that would normally be spent asking what word comes next or yeah. whatever else to, to drift into to other places, which is, which is, it's a great. Talk more about that. So it frees up part of, I mean, so memorizing the poem um, frees up your attention from like the what, right? Into, into understanding or into, into where? Yeah, I mean, I guess that the part of your attention that you would normally spend reading the next word, reading the next line, um, and having to make sense of it in context of everything that came before. Yeah. There's a certain amount of, of, of learning real estate there mm -hmm. that I would hope would start to go to the kinds of things that a poem can yield on a second or third or fourth reading, mm -hmm. right? Because there's there's time and space there to do it. And and. That's a thing that just it's a that that those extra readings and and what they deliver it's another aspect of of why I think people being exposed to poetry in an early age is so great because poetry has this kind of uh, power to be so layered you know mm -hmm. it's so con often concentrated when it's in a short form mm -hmm. um, but it allows um, a person to the reader to enter and re-enter a kind of lyric moment mm -hmm. or a narrative and usually there is there to be gleaned you know all kinds of resonances of mm -hmm. the image or the metaphor um and i and i think that you know so much of our the work we do with language is more surface mm -hmm. the communication is about sure. i give the idea to you etc mm -hmm. even when we can analyze it and poetry packs so much in so densely and memorizing a poem allows you to carry it around long enough that you can start to explore those those spaces. I, poems that I memorized when I was ten, I think about now, and mm -hmm. I realize I'm I'm hearing them completely differently. Right, right. So that's a that's a kind of treat, and the depth and texture of poetry lends itself to that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think about the um, so at Avalon they have um, a middle school poetry memorization contest. Um, and there, um, and so you'll have, you know, the boys will carefully memorize the sonnet and set it forth, and there it is. And uh, and then you have these boys who get all excited about ballad stanza, oh, and wow. so they learn these ballads that are just long and long and long, wow. and um, and they're so excited that they're able to learn it. And I mean, and of course, they're learning it because it's eight six eight six, and right, and you know, I mean, it that. exactly to memorizes itself. Yeah. Uh, but they're. Um, maybe and they're 
Um, they're so pleased that they're able to learn the super long thing um, and to, um, to sort of enjoy the rhythms of it and they enjoy um, kind of the, I don't know what, um, just like the stamina that it takes them to sure, be able to, to declare it. Yeah. <laughs> Which I mean, is it's bardic, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> but their, their body is creating this relationship with a poem. I think it's, it's, it's great. Yeah. Um, yeah. That helps me actually. Cause I, I get a little impatient with some of that. Um, <laughs> like, oh, memorize this itself, right, kid. Here's your uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, that, that's, I think that, that is really helpful to think about it as, um, as something that comes from a tradition, certainly of doing that. I mean, those poems are made to be memorized, and um, and that the the narrative structure of it as well um, keeps it you know keeps it going. And well, and it's exciting they get to participate in this historical tradition. Right? Yeah. So they get to be a part of this much longer uh, uh, legacy. I mean, it's, it's yeah. Um, and I do think that if you've memorized a particular form, whether it's a ballad or a sonnet or anything else. You're going to learn some of its sort of crevices and its 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 nooks and crannies, so that if when if or when you sit down to try to write one, mm-hmm. you have you have a different understanding of it, yeah, a, a closer understanding of it, which, yeah. is, which is wonderful. So, so maybe this is where we swoop back, back into your biography, biography. Uh, where um, <laughs> yeah, so we begin with you sitting on the floor and um, and your mom is reading some Emily Dickinson, sure, and, uh, and or you rugby, say, you know, fun stuff, fun stuff, <laughs> and you say what you doing, and um, and she reads you what she's reading, um, and so at some point, at some point she's writing, and at some point you're writing, and I'm interested in that. Yeah, I I think I may have started writing a little earlier than I needed to, but she was doing it. So I had a yeah blank journal of uh-huh. to write poems in when I was five and six. Oh, and, very nice. And seven, and the poems are about Star Wars and <laughs> Fawcett, of course, and the Garden. Do these exist? They do. Oh, you to sell them to the University of Texas. Oh, nobody wants these. <laughs> nobody wants that. <laughs> but um, they do exist, but we'll pretend they don't. Um, so I did start writing stuff and actually there was a wonderful moment in I think second grade when I brought in some poem that I'd written and the teacher was excited no actually I'm getting it was further ahead it was in fourth grade that I brought in a poem that I had written and the teacher was so she wasn't doing poetry but it was so exciting and she said you know the second graders are doing haiku let's send you down the hall Nice. And have you share, you know, with them. Oh, that's very cool. So my first teaching experience came in fourth grade. Uh, that was your I, first reading, right? <laughs> right, when I desperately needed it because I was a very lonely and sad fourth grader. Mm. So it also filled a certain, it gave me a certain identity. Yeah. That I think was, was important. But but more important, I think I was I was starting to try to re- read poetry on my own. Mm-hmm. Um. And again, no one was looking over my shoulder, so that did right. make it easier. Um, but right, because then, you, then, then you're not responsible for it in the same way, and you have the experience that you have. Yeah. And, um, and then at some future point, you can have a more standard experience and, you know, and, and sort of flesh it out in different ways. Right, but yeah. it's already kind of a friend by then. It's yeah. just, you know, your invisible friend who's hanging out with you and <laughs> not judging you. Right. But, um, and I do think that, at my school, at that point in elementary school, it was introduced in terms of play, uh-huh. which I think is really important and sounds very much like how it, part, at least partly how it comes in uh-huh. um, at your school. So um, so that was good. But I think there was a point um, at the sort of early teenage period uh-huh. when um, 
I was still not being instructed on poems, but I was encountering them, and they made a different kind of important difference to me, Mm -hmm. um, which also makes me very motivated to teach poets who are tweens and teens, Mm -hmm. especially teens. Um, And, you know, I I think it um, those poems, again, I encountered, they were just in books on shelves in my home. Mm Um, and my house was not a fun place to be at the time. My parents were freshly divorced. It was lonely. My brother and sister had left for college. And so these books were, you know, for, as they are for most nerds, they were companions. Mm-hmm. And but Jane Eyre in the little window. window. Kind of, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and I, but I would argue it was, it was a very healthy and wonderful thing to enter these poems and um, have these sort of moments of almost recognition where I felt like strong and concentrated and intense feelings and worries mm. and were being expressed yeah. um, in these poems in ways that, you know, I couldn't get from a movie or, sure. or a TV show or a conversation. And so I call this healthy and I do think it was psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. But um, the next thing I'll tell you is that the book I have in mind is Ariel, <laughs> 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 which not every parent would feel like might be the healthiest thing for their their teenager mm. to read but it, it really was um it was i was thinking about this on the drive down that um i had this sort of encounter with the poem poppies in october yes by sylvia plath even, even the, the sun, sun clouds, clouds this morning, morning cannot manage such spirits yes. oh my god no, yeah what am i that these late mouths should cry, cry open yeah. in a cry out in a forest of frost in a dawn of cornflowers yeah so so that was a moment. I, I remember where I was sitting when I read it. I was sitting in my sister's bedroom because the book was on the shelf in her room. I don't think it was her book. It was my mother's book. But How old are you in the story? I am 14, yeah. maybe. And, you know, it's gotten dark, and the lights aren't on in my house because my <laughs> mother goes to bed at 7 or 8 at night, mm. and I don't live with anybody else. And I'm reading this book, and, and, and Sylvia Plath says, oh, my God, who am I? Yeah. Right? And... You know, I can't tell you what she meant, but in that moment, I did feel recognized. Yeah. Like some part of me that nobody ever spoke to Mm -hmm. was talking to me. Yeah. Um, Which, that's a thing poems can do, I think. Yeah. And I'm I'm guessing not to pry, but (laughs) you've had some kinds of experiences like that also. Perhaps. Um, but, <laughs> um, but, but I mean, I think, and, and also, so it's the oh my god, what am I that these late these late mouths should cry out in a forest of frost? I mean, it's about the surprise of beauty, right? Yes. I mean, it's also about you know, life and blood and a bunch right, of other stuff. Right. Uh, but there's um, that heart that, that yeah, open her coat so it's down in there. Yes. Yeah. But the um, and that gift utterly unasked for. Yeah. Oily and flammable, getting its carbon monoxide. Yeah, I, I I've heard this poem too. Right? <laughs> Funny, but huh? Um, but I think that the um, but yeah, I think that that I mean, it's 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 companionship. Um, it's so it's being seen in a way, right? And it's um, and there's an element. I mean, that's a that is a tight lyric poem. Yes. Yes. Um, and, and so there's, there's also, I mean, so it, it, it sort of their concentric circles of greatness associated with that moment, right? Sure. Um, and, and also just, I mean, the 14 year old, like, well, reading yeah, something that she connects with. Moment of attention. Yeah. And it's a way of attending to something out there that calls to something in here, right? Those poppies. Yeah. 
um, that asks, you know, about identity and creations, just all those things when we're 14 or I don't know, maybe I should just talk for myself, but when I was 14, Uh nobody was asking that. People were saying, what do you want for breakfast, right? Right, right, (laughs) right. Which is perfectly appropriate, but poetry just has that ability, and and because the, the poem says this, then suddenly you are, as a reader, free to keep asking the question. Right. Right. And to the degree, degree that you can or like are able to articulate it at that time. Sure. Or, and um, and also I think that if if that wasn't a conversation you were having with your mother, the conversation one is having with one's mother. Sure. Uh, there is a um, I mean there's there's a degree to which you can have that conversation in the safe place of the book. Yes. Um, and and so there's you're you're responsible for it to the degree that you can access it and you're not responsible for it past that point absolutely what you don't understand stays on the page yeah um and and that's good because i wasn't reading these poems through the lens of sylvia plath's biography right i did not know that this poet had tried to at 14 i didn't by 16 i knew Uh right because the next thing you do is go to the library and check out the books and and we actually read the bell jar in school Uh um in an elective that I took in part because we were going to read that book. Yeah. So I did read it within a certain framework yeah. when it, when I read it, but, um, but yeah, it, it, it gives to you as much as, uh, yeah, it reflects back to you. Yeah. I feel like it pushes you a little ahead. I feel like it, we talk about like when, when brains are growing, people always talk about them forming new pathways. Yeah. And I feel like poetry can do that. Like mm-hmm. poetry can provide sort of, the beginnings of, of pathways, ways mm. to sure. apprehend or attend to things. Yeah, it can't take you the whole way. Right. Um, no, no, I like I like that you keep on coming back to attention. I think that that's I think that that's really important um, for the the lyric poem, especially right that it creates this space um, in which um, you know there are images. There can be a certain there's a certain amount of action, um, but that um, that you're attending to it more closely in a different way. I know that, um, like flying on a plane, I would, um, I'm always happy to have a book of poems. I just sort of open it and look at one for Mm -hmm. a while. And I find that that's a, like, that's a good, a good space. Um, when I'm kind of like suspended, you know, when I myself am sort of suspended, right? That's a um, that's a good way to um, sort of attend to things without um, you know the nattering of narrative, right? <laughs> right. Gravity, linear gravity is pulling you down and yeah. pushing you through. Yeah, right. You're up there somewhere. I write often on airplanes, mm. which is weird. If I can get over the anxiety of liftoff, mm. then I write, and it is because you're suspended. It's that lyric moment. It creates yeah. a lyric moment. I feel like at this point I should say something about negative capability. (laughs) No, just that that there's that, I mean, there's that, that Mm -hmm. sort of, um, like hanging out in that liminal space Mm -hmm. and, um, and being able to see and pursue and express without the pressure to go after a particular meaning. Right. Yeah. Well, and so many of my favorite poets evoke that, those liminal spaces. I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about Brigitte Pagin. Bridget Pegeen Kelly, I'll never say her name, and um, just sort of uh, poets that, well, and Louise Glick in Wild Iris. Yeah. The sort of, that's an extended suspended moment, yeah. kind of. 
Um, And poems can do that in a way that I think is really hard to achieve in other forms. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And certainly, I mean, I think about um, what I learned from you about Louise Glick with her um, apparently going for long periods of time sort of you know, receiving <laughs> what what she's going to do, and I mean, maybe keeping notebooks, maybe doing something else, um, but then sitting down and writing the collection in um, in a what to me seems an astonishing short period of time, um, and um, and sort of like having collected those images, they're ready to be mm-hmm. uh, produced, and you get those those things that she does so well um, in pattern in a way that is at once really alive and well-crafted yeah that must be nice (laughs) nice for her (laughs) i say as somebody who took literally eight years to write my most recent book (laughs) because there are other ways to approach there's different processes absolutely yeah (laughs) yeah yeah so um when you're teaching now are you teaching poetry students I am. Yeah. Right now I'm teaching adults. Uh-huh. So for the first time. Oh, right. You're at the ages, Poetry Barn? Through the Poetry Barn and also through a program at Middle Tennessee State University oh, right. called MST Write. And mm-hmm. so there's Zoom workshops and things. So uh-huh. right now it's all adults, but for many years it was middle school and high school yeah. students. So yeah. that's a shift. Uh-huh. But uh, Yeah. No, I, um, I love teaching my poetry elective. Um, it comes up every so often yeah. and uh, when the students have cycled through. And, um, and and I think in part it's because I have a lot of the same questions that my students have. I just have them in a different way. And um, and like it's it's something that that gives me energy rather than costing me energy. I'll, often with the electives at Brooklyn, the you know the the, the administrator uh, is saying, you know, this is another class. You don't have to do this. And the response is, well, no, it, it gives me energy to do the other things. Sure. And, um, and just, I mean, hanging out with the students, being interested in, like, how to craft the poem and being interested in, um, in line and image in a way that um, feels very organic and alive to them and is very important to them. Well, and it's interesting because um, we were talking about liminal spaces, and in the collection I just wrote, um, one of the things when people ask me what it's about, I say it's about sort of thresholds Uh and moments of transition, and the two main thematically thresholds that I point to in terms of the narrative are the coming-of-age moment and the middle-age moment, which Uh are both periods of change. And it is so great, actually, Mm. to be a middle-aged person talking about poetry with Uh the coming-of-age people because we're both in those moments of transition. Oh, that's interesting. And poetry really makes room for that kind of liminal space. Uh Like, I don't know, I just feel like it's about kind of the wonder of being between. Uh And, you know, their between is not always the same as my between. Right. But we can both kind of get on the same page with a poem that that doesn't have its feet in linear time in the same way. Uh And I... I think that speaks to personal experience and just where we are. Yeah, very cool. So we've talked a little bit about poetry memorizing. We've talked a little bit about, um, I think we've talked in a sideways way about the value of poetry. I don't know that we need to talk, I don't know that we need to talk about it in a, um, in a sort of front forward way. Um, I mean, I think about um, poetry as a way in which students I mean, readers can um, develop empathy for others um, through, I mean, as you're talking about um, feeling the companionship of, you know, of the speaker in Poppies in October and um, and how that happens in in all these different ways. Um, Yeah, I think that, I I think that those are important things. Um, 
maybe this would be a good moment for you if you would like to to read a poem okay <laughs> you insist you happen to have one right here I do I do um well we've talked a little bit about sort of coming of age and those sort of moments of the threshold moments so I could start with a poem that that definitely does that since that's what are ha- is happening in a lot of these poems uh-huh. so I will read if that's okay it'd be great the first poem um from my book where the wolf which is called first night Two hours after my father left for good, with his wet hair lamp gleam black and his zippered bag, my mother pulsed through the house, turning off all the lights. I followed her, then sat on the rug in the dark, watching smoke twist up from her cigarette and drop small stars to burn into her blouse, black with blue roses. I did not yet believe in the kitchen to come, in bottles that lit and littered the air, tilting here from the future, that God could lay her down years on that couch. I looked up at her. I touched the rug's braid. Behind her head, four cold windows. Beyond them, outside, in grass moon-wet with night, a ghost wolf guarded the yard. In memory, she moves now, out from the alders and skirts the silver swings, her tufts bristle in the grass. We had called her name with a snap of the switch on the glass-white globe, turn of the lamp's brass key, with our breath and fingers. Without that dark, Wolf could never have found us. She could not have come to me, would not have felt safe. My mother was sagging already, losing stars, buckling under her story. Pain found me wolf's ghost body, gave me never and fur. I dreamed, I hid, I held, I would not tell. Thanks. I'm interested. I kind of don't want to talk. I kind of just want to like, let everyone stop the podcast for a period of time and let it, let it absorb. Um, I'm interested in the blend of um, sort of personal or um, autobiographical material with the magic and the mystery. And maybe that's an artificial separation, right? I mean, maybe it's already interwoven and seen in um in this way i don't know um that's my question the, uh, <laughs> about the um yeah well, that's but, like how does it how does the personal get transmuted into the poem um how is over many many years and the reason i say that is that i actually the first time i tried to write this poem was in 1986 mm. i mean i wrote about this night uh-huh. right so this speaker whose parents have split up, and this night is not unlike one I experienced myself. And um, I will say the speaker, just because the speaker is often and that's how we do it. adjacent. Yeah. Right? But um, so I wanted to write about a night that had happened to me. And the first time I did it, it was in 1986. And yeah. there was no wolf in that poem. Uh-huh. God was not named in that poem. Um, I wouldn't say there was no God in that poem. But there was no 
there was no invoking of God in the poem. It was a very, and the sort of, the approach to the poem was about a math problem that the speaker was working on Mm -hmm. when the father was leaving. So Uh really different, obvious approach. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And it didn't work. And I knew at, you know, 17, it it didn't work. It didn't capture what the experience was, Uh the intense and vivid, and the sense in the experience that things were changing dramatically. Yeah, sort of the the layers layers of experience. experience. So you can 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 tell tell the story this way or that way. Um, But this way on the page now has um, a a complex relationship, um, as we say in AP English, to to the material, right? I mean, so it's a kind of complex expression of a complex moment. And of course, I couldn't have written this in 1986 because I could only approach this night um, in this way from my current vantage point, from my adult understanding of what what the experience was like, but everything that's happened since informs the mm-hmm. poem. Yeah. Um, I mean, literally informs with, you know, in the kitchen to come. So let's talk about what comes next, yeah. right? Yeah. The speaker is a, is a time traveler, mm-hmm. right? Um, but also, um, I, I never got it right. I, I tried writing it then. I think I tried writing a version of the poem in my 20s, and I just kept abandoning them because they yeah. didn't feel true to a level of the experience that yeah. was important to convey. Right, right. right. I, mean, I mean, the, the time-traveling time aspect um, reminds me a little bit of uh, Marie Howe mm-hmm. and um, in, in, her, um, in, in her various ways of um, talking about childhood from the vantage of being plastic. Um, and then, of course, I mean, your poem does something, you know, very different uh, as it transforms in the second half. But um, but I think that um, but I think that's something that I recognize from other good contemporary poetry that I like. Um, that sort of um, that the speaker is in the moment, beyond the moment, um, and able to to say the moment in a way that um, that encompasses elements that are literal and elements that are magical yes i think that an interesting thing about how i got to this poem is that i had been writing a lot of poems that had fairy tale figures and elements in them yeah but that weren't weren't so specifically autobiographical yeah and my first impulse was i couldn't possibly combine those that type of work with with a poem about this night right but then the longer, like I said, it took eight years to do this. The longer I wrote these poems, the more I, they kind of both worlds merged for me. Uh-huh. And, and then once I had done it, I, it sort of, it allowed me to finish the book. Once I wrote this poem, it was really the turning point for the book. Because mm. I thought, oh, now I know how to write about these, these other yeah, things. Okay. But it was very And so this, this one, one became several? Or this, this one sort of gave rise to yes, several more? This one gave rise to, to many others that, that don't look a lot like it necessarily. Uh-huh. But gave, this one gave me a path. Yeah. It gave me a path. And it was really, it's going to sound strange, so maybe I shouldn't try, but I'm going to do it anyway. It was important to me um, in this poem, which is the first poem in the book, that the poem invoke this wolf, because the wolf sort of is a motif in a lot of the poems in the mm-hmm. book. 
um, and and the kind of sort of fairy tale magic that you associate with that, and that the poem invoke the kitchen and the cigarette and the mom and the dad, and that the poem invoke God, mm-hmm. because all of these are part of the reality of these poems, mm-hmm. and leaving any element out would reduce, simplify, um, reduce or simplify, would be yeah. reductive. Yeah. I'm not quite sure what I'm saying. Would, would yes, would, would sort of hollow out right, right. The, the, the immediacy of the experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, and none of this feels, um, I mean, it all feels very organic, right? None of it feels, um, you know, I must include these elements, right? It, there's, <laughs> a, there's not that, that sense of it or um, the sense that we have a lot of baggage tied up with any of these elements, um, but that here they are and they bring, you know, the words around them in order to set forth what, what they're, they're going to do, do in this poem. Well, and I should say, organically, all those things did happen in the writing of this, this poem. So it wasn't, it wasn't a, there wasn't a, an agenda, but I will say in terms of... Well, you had to of, write for like 30 years <laughs> or something, <laughs> well, right? Yeah. But I wasn't like, I'm going to put this and this and this this poem when I was writing, right. this is just what happened. But I, there was a kind of feedback I received from some corners that you can't have a poem that has God and fairy tales in it, uh-huh. or you can't do all these things together. Huh. Okay. And it was very important to me that they stay. Yeah. Because um, woven together, they're part of this speaker's subjectivity mm-hmm. and her experience of the moment. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, having been to poetry workshops for X number of years, right, too, you, you've learned... Um, I understand that there's some tension surrounding <laughs> surrounding this element or that element, and then you trust yourself enough, enough to know that like this poem this poem does this. It doesn't do something else. I'm not gonna, you know, I, I, I might change another one or I might change you know some element of it, but um, but this poem is doing what it's doing. Well, and I think this is one of the beauties of poetry is that you can pull these things together in yeah. one space, one emotional and mysterious space mm-hmm. and that's the thing i love about the genre yeah um, yeah i mean i, mean, I, I would imagine, imagine lots of readers would appreciate um <laughs> that the coexistence <laughs> of the fairy tale elements um and the um you know the more day-to-day feeling mother and um and god you know i think that 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 those things you know they belong here Oh, I hope so because we're not we're not doing a rewrite of this one. <laughs> <laughs> it's page one. Not gonna walk with me now. It's too yeah. late. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to read another, another one? one? Um, sure. I can certainly do that. We have time for another one. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I'm gonna stick with the coming of age theme. So that seems to be something we've been talking about. Um, and this one is uh, has no wolves in it. So for anybody who's, who's already tired of wolves, <laughs> which is bad news because there are a lot of wolf poems, but here's one without a wolf. Morning. The angel of the black bowl sets it on the table. The girl sits down. She will not eat. She wears a dress the color of her mother's hunger. She does not believe in breakfast, dreams, the eggs, songs, dead in their shells. The room won't be her balloon, regretting the sky. The clock 
turns its face away. The chandelier above her kicks light into the past, that time when she knew how to be born. The bowl won't be her cradle. She looks into the black bowl and sees a vicious wing. She looks into the black bowl and sparrows are folding their wet brown papers. She looks in and forgets there are ways to eat and be a breath, a daughter. The girl bows her head for a blessing. Inside the black bowl, it begins to snow. And I just want everyone to turn off the podcast for a minute and just let, let it sink in. Yeah, nice. Well, I feel like this one speaks to what I was trying to say about poetry as a genre. I mean, I feel like only in poetry can you do this stuff that I just yeah. did. I can't right. get away with this. And, you know. Yeah. And also, this gives me a chance to, I mean, I, I want to get back to um, some other um, more magical elements of the poem. But, um, but the other thing that you learned from Sylvia Plath um, is this crazy, um, in a good way, um, assonance and consonance, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she wears the dress the color of her mother's hunger. Um, the, you know, the, the room won't be her balloon regretting the sky. I mean, those, um, those catches in the line um, give it a kind of musicality that's different from the, you know, the anaphora later, she looks into the black bowl and sees a vicious wing. She looks into the black bowl and sparrows are folding their wet brown papers. She looks in, right? I mean, so you get a different kind of repetition. You get um, the, the sound repetition early, and then you get the, you know, the repetition of the, of the beginning of the sentence later. Um, and I think that that's, um, I mean, that's, a, a big part of the poetic inheritance, right, of the of the 20th century Absolutely. is, like, being able to um, to work that free verse lyric. And those repetitions of sound have so much um, power. There's such an opportunity there to um, create, establish, evoke, and build tone, uh-huh. right? You can do – it's just an extra – it's like having an extra string on your instrument um, because the poem's music um, – uh, receives, you know, these, you can combine the meanings of particular words mm-hmm. with the repetitions of particular kinds of sounds mm-hmm. to help create a tone. Yeah, and then there's rhythm. Yeah, then there's that. Yeah. So, <laughs> and so you, I mean, did you have that? I mean, I'm thinking, I was looking at, she looks in and forgets there are ways to eat and be a breath, a daughter. And the way that, I mean, that there are sounds that hook up with each other, but then it's kind of the, the shape of the line um, in terms of its rhythm. That that also um, gives it part of its um, complexity, for lack of a better word. Sure, I mean you can play with expectations. You set expectations, like with the anaphora, with the repetition, and then you vary, and that's your you know opportunity for surprise. It's also um, that image at the end, right? That um, that you're able to kind of bookend the poem. The, the angel of the black bowl sits on the table at the beginning. At the end, the girl bows her head for a blessing. Inside the black bowl, it begins to snow. Yeah. It's just a nice, rich image that could go any number of ways. Yeah, and I, I, I'm very interested, again, in sort of what the generative potential of that bowl, right? Uh, yeah. And, um, and 
we have a speaker who looks in sort of in the middle of the poem and sees in a way that, that feels very much almost like she might be imposing. She sees something that tells us something about her. Uh-huh. But by the end, I'm hoping that agency that happens within the bowl yeah. feels for the reader like it's it's happening kind of outside of her uh-huh. and, and does, I hope, yeah. echo back to the angel. Yeah, um, yeah. I, a lot of the poems, I, I've had somebody say they're all sad, and I, and I hope they're not all sad. They're each, they each have sadness in them, but uh-huh. it was part of my idea that, that a poem like this not be completely sad. Yeah. To me, it doesn't read as completely sad. Yeah, well, I mean, the snow goes a number of different ways, right? I mean, the snow is general all over Ireland, right? I mean, so you've got the snow as the objective correlative for death, um, but then you've also got, um, you know, the snow in contrast to the black hole um, and, you know, childhood and snow. And there's a balloon yeah, beginning earlier. to snow. Which yeah. Is, you know, it's a really different thing from folding wet brown papers, I'd hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what she's done is bowed her head for a blessing mm. right before that. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. That's all I'll say. Okay. <laughs> is it a no bod? Uh, sure. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> listeners, um, Obad, and Obad is a poem um, in praise of the morning. Yes. 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 Which, but you get lots of um, ironic twists on the Obad as a. Um, sort of um, open form or like a thematic um, idea in, you know, in, in various places. So it's not always straight up in praise of the morning, but you have, you have morning and you get an angel. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you've got a speaker who doesn't believe in breakfast and hopefully you have some of this standing in tension with that. Yeah. Well, you've got um, the eggs songs dead in their shells early on. And you've got the sparrows folding their wet brown papers mm-hmm. in, in a vicious way. We're going to have to spend some more time with this. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's wonderful, I think, because it is, um, it's a substantial poem that's doing a lot, but yet it's not heavy. And it, it, it's, not, um, it's not overdetermined, mm-hmm. you know? Well, and it's taken me the, it's taken me years to learn how to write poems that are actually relatively short. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and I, I have always had the weakness of coming into the poem with, with wanting to shut it down too soon, sort of over-determining yeah, okay. in advance what it's going to be. So yeah. this poem is, is emblematic of, I think, something I'm, I'm trying and learning to do. And that's the other beautiful thing about if you start writing poems when you're 13 or 14, when you start reading them then... I mean, the journey does not end. I feel like every decade I've had completely new experiences mm. with poetry. Mm. It's just, it, it just doesn't get old, and mm. it's, it, it keeps surprising me. And there's yeah. always something new to try that I haven't tried. Yeah, I don't know what happened to Wordsworth. What happened? I mean, just like, as <laughs> you get older, right? And it didn't work yeah. out. I mean, so some, yeah. po- some poets, it doesn't work out. But for um, Maybe he started with too much romantic ideal. Uh, and, um, that could be. His expectations were a, a little high. Yeah, yeah. No, thinking about the um, the poem as being um, evocative, yet substantial, and um, and not and you know and again it's um, it has meaning, but it's not overdetermined. Um, I think that's a real skill. Well, what you hope is, if for instance a young reader comes to this poem they can take whatever experiences they've had 
and through and look through those at those final lines and mm-hmm. and get something they need. Yeah. Not necessarily something I want them to have, but something they need. Right. Right. What do you think? One more? Let's read one more. Okay. Now I'm trying to remember. Okay. All right. We're going to we can finish with a, another another coming of age if if I'm not um, pushing that too hard. So those um, teen years last forever. So <laughs> this poem is called Self-Portrait with Mock's Principle, 1981. And actually, I was thinking, this poem is arguably in a kind of dialogue with Sylvia Plath's Poppies in October. Hmm. Well, I don't know about a dialogue, but, but I think my attempt to write a poem like this is in part speaking to the experience I had of reading Sylvia okay. Plath's Pop- Poppies in October, so uh-huh. that's closer. But this poem, you don't have to know Mach's principle. It, it doesn't matter. It's some science thing. It's no big. But I will start with a quote about Mach so we know where the poem starts. A guy named Paul Davies, in an article called Inertia Theory, said, quote, Mach insisted that acceleration can be defined only relevant relative to the distant stars. Who can measure the dread between this girl and the distant stars? Does it diminish when she's spinning out in the Rumsey's field, arms flung wide, hands learning their pitch and roll through twilight, while ironweeds mark her sandals with crushed buds? When she slows, is she sick with blooms or doubt? These days she gets dizzy when her father's nova revs into the drive, each visit too quiet, an uncertain orbit, or in her brother's empty room, circling the stack of warm shirts he didn't take to school, and at night when a man's voice on the radio almost fills the house where there are no longer men, darkness trembling in its thin hairline hum. What helps her is the blue sheet of her mother's cigarette pulled soft across her lungs, or the gold book open in the grass to Jacob and that wing-lit ladder. And then the smell of sweet gum when her face spins past. These days she gets dizzy sitting still. For instance, at dinner, is there a way to gauge the tilt of the old white table toward the future, bow of her father's phone yanked from the wall, slow pull of her mother's chin toward the system of spoons and heavy plates? And who could factor in the coming dark? The galaxy waits in the field, intimate, for her to drop the book, whirl and wheel. It reaches cold fingers down. On nights like this, she knows it fears as she fears, with broken awe, soft and vast, which means she can move round and round inside it, boundless, and belong. But who can reckon the drag of salvation? A force that cries out to her now, calling her a body unfixed that must stop turning, must stop and be unsafe again, be part of the field, the unfixed ground, must go home and lie down in her mother's house and learn to rest in the changing world. Thank you so much for coming to talk to me today, Sally. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Um, For me too. I it must be awesome to be able to do this. I learned a new word this last week called Freudenfreude. It's joy at another success, 
in contrast to schadenfreude, um, about which we do not speak. Uh, the, um, but no, I, I feel um, I feel really pleased and proud that you know that my that my my good old friend has um, has gone on to write these wonderful things. Well, I feel the same and way so, about you and awesome. what you're doing in education. So, yay for us! <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you. This has been the Brookwood and Avalon Life of the Mind podcast. I'm Sherry Walsh here with Sally Rosen Kindred. Our producer is Quentin Walsh. Our theme music is by Fabian Tell. Opinions expressed are the participants' own.